Yellow Ladybugs respectfully operates in Warrantry country of the Kulin Nation. We would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge, recognize, and respect the traditional owners of country and their continuing connections to lands, waters, and communities. We honour this privilege and pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to the Yellow Ladybugs podcast. Last year, we were so proud to offer our groundbreaking ADHD and Autistic Minds conference. Our three-day conference celebrated neurodivergent girls, women, and gender diverse individuals, drawing from both the lived experience and expert knowledge of 45 speakers and over 3,000 attendees. In case you missed it, we're doing it all again for our Yellow Ladybugs conference 2023. In preparation for our upcoming conference, we've decided to revisit some of the key moments from last year and make them available to our community. We're doing this with the support of the Department of Education Victoria. Today, we'll hear all about interoception from Dr. Emma Goodall. Dr. Emma explains why it's so critical to understand the internal sensory system as the basis for both physical and emotional regulation and the impact this can have on executive functioning. If you'd like more information on our upcoming 2023 conference, head to YLB Conference. 2023.vfairs.com or check out the show notes. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of the ADHD and Autistic Minds conference series. Hi everyone, I'm Natasha Stoheli from Yellow Ladybugs and I'm really delighted to be introducing four neurodivergent panellists who will be sharing their expert and neuroaffirming perspectives on supporting our children's executive functioning in the home environment. Whether it is chores, homework, behaviour or simply not losing things or getting ready for school in the morning, this panel is going to be all about practical strategies that reflect the importance of connection, are respectful of neurology and are grounded in believing that our children are doing the best that they can. Joining me today is Lou Brown. Lou is a PhD candidate, appointed director on the Australian ADHD Professionals Association Board in the role of consumer advisor and a consumer advisor and research collaborator attached to a team at Deakin University. Lou and her son both have ADHD. Welcome, Lou. Next, we have Danielle Wilson. Danielle is an ADHD, dyspraxic and autistic student teacher, neurodivergent mother of three and a passionate advocate for using her experience and knowledge to help and educate others. Welcome, Danielle. Yama. Next, we have Raylene Dundon. Raylene is an autistic ADHD, educational and developmental psychologist, author and parent to three adult autistic children. She is passionate about supporting neurodivergent children to understand and accept who they are and to empower them to be themselves in a society that still has a long way to go in celebrating difference. Welcome, Raylene. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Bye. And last but not least, we have Ebony Birchhanger. Ebony is an autistic public speaker, special education teacher, education consultant and Yellow Ladybugs ambassador. As someone who has invested a lot of time and energy into understanding her own executive functioning needs, she has a strong interest in combining her lived and professional experience to support autistic individuals, families and educators. Welcome, Ebony. Thanks, Natasha. Hi, everyone. Hi. Okay. We have so much to get through in the next hour and a lot of insights and ideas to share. So let's get straight to it. So to start, I'm asking our panellists to think back to their own experience at home as a child or teen. Where did you struggle most in terms of your own executive functioning? Using the benefit of hindsight, what did your parents need to know and how could they have helped? So, Danielle, we might ask you to answer that first. Thank you so much. Um, My problem when I was a child and a teenager, and I'm still struggling with my own children and teenagers with this, is finishing tasks. The reason why I struggled so much when I was a child was that I knew that I had to start the the task and I knew what done looked like. But when it came to what it visualised and what it looked like in the steps in between, 
I couldn't break that task down enough. I couldn't analyze the micro steps that were needed. My executive function was just overwhelming. I'd see the wide task in front of me, but not be able to narrow it down into this is now and this is next. So I'd get overwhelmed. I'd freeze. I'd react. Um, it was my anxiety. It was very anxiety inducing for me. I'm sure it's stressful for my parents. It's stressful watching my children go through it too. And I know now how to do the task. Uh, but it led to a lot of negative self-talk as well because I knew what the task looked like to complete and I'm intelligent enough to be able to see that, oh, yes, this is not done, this is not done, but I didn't know the how. So um, without detailed information, details and breakdowns of what to do, I struggled very much. Since then, becoming an adult and raising my own neurodivergent children, I've worked out that um, you can't just sit a child in a room and say, okay, work. Uh, that happened to me a lot in high school, particularly, where they'd put me in a room and say, okay, we're going to give you all this time of the world to finish an assignment, and then I would come out with nothing done. So it requires a multifaceted approach of not only giving the child space to learn to do the task, but also breaking, helping them model and see how you break down those steps. I'm sure everyone can relate to the messy bedroom. Um, go clean your bedroom is a wonderful statement to throw offhand, but it doesn't achieve anything for me as a child being told, could you please go and sort your sock drawer? Could you please go and now sort your underwear drawer? It's about building those little steps towards independence and building those steps towards a bigger goal and a bigger picture that they will get eventually and have faith because in time, those little steps do build up to a big pyramid. Great advice there and great insight. Thank you so much. We'll move on to you now, Ebony. So um, for me, um, the thing I remember having the most difficulty with were tasks that had multiple steps. Um, and the number one uh, task being homework. Um, so for me, it was about getting started on the task, on the homework, the structure and layout of different tasks and doing too much work, which was something that I always did. Um, so what my mum needed to know or what I wished she knew, and maybe she did, but she just didn't tell me, um, but was that I wasn't aware that I had challenges with executive functioning. I just did what I needed to do or what I thought I needed to do to get tasks done. And in my mind, there was absolutely no other way to do the task. So when she would come in and suggest, maybe you could try this or you don't actually need to do any more work or maybe we could do it this way, it was absolutely not. When I was in the zone and in the middle of a task, I thought there was absolutely no other way I could possibly do it. Um, another thing that would have been useful for her to realise was that doing my homework well made me feel in control. And that's why I continued to try and do so. Um, when I was thinking of ways that she could have helped, um, trying to understand the why, um, why I couldn't get started, why I felt I needed to do things in the way that I was doing them. I remember her always trying to help me do things the way that I wanted to do um, and trying to suggest other ways to do it. But I don't remember her questioning me and asking me why. Um, and that could have potentially led to discussions about strategies that we both could have used to, to assist. Um, one more thing she could have done was possibly explaining what she saw at home to my teachers, because then my teachers may have realised I actually needed support, um, which none of them did. Um, so if she had explained, this is what I'm seeing at home when she's trying to do her homework, um, I think that would have resulted in more support from school as well, which could have been really useful. Thank you. Um, I'm going, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm thinking about my own kids. That's really, really useful and um, insightful information. Thank you, Ebony. So, um, Lou, what would you like to add? Well, I'm going to answer this question a little bit differently because um, I'm not autistic, but I have ADHD. And I pretty much say that when it comes to executive functions, I struggled with everything. I had no pause button and no filter, and I'm pretty sure most of the time I lived in an imaginary world of my own until I was in trouble. And I would have needed my parents to really know that I was trying, and I never purposely meant to frustrate or embarrass them. How I would describe it now is that having ADHD is like living without a pause button or a filter, without medication and assistance to help you develop self-awareness and supportive strategies. You often don't have the ability to stop, think and carefully choose your words and actions and you're actually unable to make a conscious decision because everything is impulsive. 
As a result, your responses tend to be automatic, immediate, unfiltered, and your decisions impulsive, which leaves you really vulnerable to negative consequences. Additionally, you can't stop your mind from wandering or block the constant barrage barrage of spontaneous, irrelevant thoughts that continuously interrupt your focus. They hijack your attention and they make you lose track of time. I also found it nearly impossible to stop my mind from engaging in interesting, unimportant Um, tasks and topics, yet frustratingly couldn't make myself complete important mundane ones despite the consequences. The last thing I would like my parents to understand was that if you place expectations on a child with ADHD that are beyond their capacity in the moment, you set them up to fail. You also set them up to feel overwhelmed, anxious, bad and stupid. You crush their emerging self-concept and self-esteem and you increase the likelihood that they'll give up, withdraw, melt down or rebel. And instead, we need to adjust our expectations and put in place scaffolding that helps bridge the gap between their capacity and the expectations placed upon them and help them feel good about themselves and achieve success. Wow, thank you. Raylene? For me, the thing that really sticks in my head is an experience of, and I think probably this is a combination of ADHD and and autism for me, was constantly talking. And I would get in trouble constantly for talking all the way through primary school, particularly, but to a point that I really clearly remember um, being teased for always putting my hand up to answer questions and always having something to say in class. And my parents' advice at that time was to actually stop doing it, to just sort of sit on my hands and and, um, let other kids have a turn. Um, And, you know, I I really, looking back on that, and it's actually something that stayed with me in terms of an anxiety around talking too much um, in different settings and actually, you know, having too much input sometimes. So it's something that has actually, you know, stayed with me and it wasn't something that I could really control. It was very hard for me to not put my two cents in wherever. Um, But also I think for me, um, and I've seen it in clients as well, that idea of if I don't say it now, I'm not going to remember it when they ask me in a few minutes and so then I'm going to lose it. I've got to tell you now. I've got to share it now. And so I I think for me, um, my parents and my teacher at the time understanding that there was a reason why I was doing it. This wasn't a kid that was just trying to dominate the class or show off or, you know, any of those things. I was a kid that just wanted to share and couldn't help sharing or interrupting, um, you know, when something came to mind. And so I think giving me other ways of, I think, understanding myself, which obviously they didn't, and I'm a late-diagnosed autistic and adhd so it wasn't something that was on anyone's radar um, when I was younger. And, um, you know, I think understanding my brain and understanding that that was something I needed to do and finding ways of managing the anxiety around sharing, um, perhaps being able to write down what I wanted to say and then if I didn't get a chance to answer in the moment, being able to do that later and letting the teacher know what I knew or, you know, the little things that, that, that would have helped rather than actually just trying to um, change who I was, which was the best that they could do at the time. Thank you so much, Raylene. Home is often the battleground when it does come to executive functioning challenges. And as I've just hinted, all too often recommended approaches can get it wrong with their focus on things like reward charts and behaviour plans. And so I've asked our panellists to cover four of the key areas of home life, which are homework, chores, self-care or organisation and discipline. And for each of these, I've asked them to identify examples of executive functioning challenges and to share neuroaffirming strategies that are not about short-term compliance and instead are grounded in understanding that our kids do well when they can. So we're going to start by talking about homework and perhaps, Raylene, if you want to kick off on this one. Um, so it's a tricky one, absolutely. And I think Ebony just touched really beautifully on on one of the biggest things um, that is a challenge for um, our kids doing homework is actually getting started. Um, and I think, you know, it, it really does end up, unfortunately, with, um, you know, with real problems 
um, between parents and I know my own children trying to get them to do homework, um, having, you know, having arguments, there being some, you know, some disagreements or distress. So homework can be a really challenging thing. So obviously one of the things that sometimes we will suggest is, is to request that kids don't do homework. The research actually says that it doesn't really benefit kids terribly much. And so that actually is something that can be helpful. Um, something that I have found um, is helpful with my kids that are struggling, particularly when they're resistant around um, a particular thing like um, getting their ideas down and planning what they might need to do for a particular task. Um, I'll get them to do, um, a, I call we call it a brain spew, <laughs> but basically just sit and just write everything you can or tell me everything you can about whatever that is and I'll write it down for you. And then we'll go back and we'll organise it and we'll sort it and we'll figure out how to present it in a way that is going to be helpful. But it gets it out Um because there isn't, I think, that pressure to have it structured and have it done in a particular way. So that's something that I've found with my kids, particularly as they get older and their tasks become more complex, um, has been a great way to sort of get past um, some of those barriers around planning and task initiation. Thank you so much. That's really great. Um, I'm just going to keep moving so we can get through this. Ebony, do you want to add your thoughts on homework next? Sure. So I've um, chosen one area of executive functioning. Um, and the reason I've done that is because you need to know which area of executive functioning your child is having challenges with to actually support, put the right strategies in place because the strategies will differ for each, each area. So I've wanted to, um, I wanted to focus on an area that's not spoken about very often, which is metacognition. And that is self-awareness or thinking about your own thinking. Now, if you have a child that doesn't have a lot of um, well-developed metacognition, it means they're not going to be aware of or that they will find it difficult to actually reflect on their own progress um, and work out where they're up to when they're looking at their homework. So a couple of strategies are to um, for the child to set a reminder at regular intervals, might be 15 minutes or 30 minutes, um, a reminder for themselves to check their progress. Where am I up to? What have I done? What do I need to do next? Um, and also checking with themselves about their feelings or their state, state of body or state of mind. Am I still feeling calm? Am I still feeling settled? Or am I starting to get a bit frustrated, which means I need to take a break? So having that reminder set at regular intervals as a check-in. Um, the other strategy would be to have a prompt note stuck up somewhere in the study space, so on the wall or on the desk at the top of the computer, um, of reminding the child that if they notice they are frustrated, overwhelmed or getting tired, to ask themselves this question, is what I'm trying to do working? And they can just have that question stuck up. Is what I'm trying to do working? And if that child was one, actually, no, this is not working, that is then their prompt to change what they're doing, which they can, you know, get some support from, from an adult or an older sibling potentially to change what they're doing um, so they can continue to progress with the homework and, and get it done um, if that's what they're being required to do. Thank you. Some really good practical advice there, um, and I know it's come from from experience. So um, fantastic. Thank you, Ebony. Um, Lou, we'll go to you next. Gosh, my experience is so different. I didn't realise really how different my ADHD brain is to the autistic brain in many ways. Um, the, with homework, the first thing about kids with ADHD is they probably remember they've got homework and can they actually even have the ability to sit there and do it if they're basically unmedicated? You can't necessarily stop everything from interrupting you. You can't activate if you haven't got interest. Your brain's going to want to go and do all these other things to get dopamine instead. So um, it's very challenging and I would never expect my son to do um, homework without having medication on board. When he was younger, I used to always make it visible. I wouldn't even expect him to remember. So he would, we did homework in the morning um, when he was in primary school. We don't do that now. But it would basically come out and I would have it on the table. It would be, everything would be timed for his medication. I mean, he couldn't have even eaten his breakfast without medication because he would just go, blah, 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 blah. Can you have another bite, Jack? Yeah, sure, Mum. Blah, 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 blah. And it never happens. So he had to balance everything. So when, you know, his medications were he could get dressed, if he came in and has his um, homework out, he could visibly see it. 
And that was the prompt to do it rather than me nagging him. There were times we used to make things fun. We used to say one mass question and I'll give you one smarty. I know that's not ideal, but whatever works sometimes. Um, other times, even sitting at the table doing something else so that he wasn't alone. Um, and um, at one stage we even, and we were lucky we could afford it, we used to tutor because um, it was easier for him to focus if there was someone else helping him do it, like, you know, stay focused and do the questions one-on-one and being independent. I've always chosen my relationship first and I'm not willing to be the mum that's sitting there nagging and us having an argument about it. I'd much rather, you know, do it a, a different way. Thank you. Look, it's really good to get your different insights into this um, with that sort of ADHD perspective as opposed to the autistic one or where they combine. So thank you so much. So, um, Danielle, we're going to get you to finish on homework. Uh, so I have a demand avoidant child at home. So homework is always a bit of a funny one because there's so many demands involved. And when you think in the afternoon, demand avoidant ADHD child comes home from school, medication's wearing off. The last thing on their mind is managing all the different parts of executive function and sitting there and trying to do homework. We have found some things that work, and this is where parental advocacy can really come into its own. Um, we've advocated for creative homework. So uh, one of the things our school, thank goodness, and I've now taken this into my teacher education, uh, we get no, we get books home from school to read with the words covered over and we have to make up our own stories. So there is no demand on the child to jump through hoops. It is just a, here's a book, make up a story. We've got creativity. It encourages gamifying. Um, so, you know, if we have a spelling list or a spelling word, we'll go outside and throw the ball back and forth while we try and work through the word. We try to gamify as much as we can to make it a novelty and also to get, get get the child moving after school because I'm sure most of your kids come home and they're quite three-sousedly wild. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we try our best to make it physical, make it novel, make it interesting. Um, but, of course, it's always hard to do when it's the end of the day, you've got dinner to do and things like that. So for me, um, as both a parent and an educator, I'm just happy with 2%. Um, we have a big sign sitting in our whiteboard that says 2% is better than 0% um, because 2% can grow. And if you're putting in 2% now and 2% later, that's 4%. We exponentially start going up. Uh, but one of the other things, um, and I really attest to this, um, is get your child to talk not about school. Find out what the goals are of the homework. Homework is not just about regurgitating what they've done at school. Why are we doing the homework? What are we outcomes are we trying to assess? And parental advocacy, again, comes into its own. If you can find out what the teachers are after, maybe they're not after a page of math questions. Maybe they just want you to have that dialogue about what happens when we add? What happens? Where can we see the math in the world? And some people, that's just enough to, 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 to tick them over and keep that memory going until the next day at school. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I'm advocating is, is such an important part of this and I think you've given given parents some really good ideas on 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 how to approach schools how to work with their kids and we love the idea of gamifying it's come up elsewhere in different panel discussions um around being a parent and doing the things you have to do as a parent and gamifying that so it's really great to have you reinforcing that thank you so much so look we're going to move on now to probably the other least fun part of home life <laughs> depending um, and that is around chores and contributing to family um, and we know this is a struggle for a lot of families and we know it's totally okay to say particularly if you've got demand avoidant children we're just not doing it I'm just not going to ask my child to do this because they have to it's it's so we're we're all for whatever's going to work for individual families um when we discuss this um so we might start this time sorry ebony i'm going to spring this one on you first and um get you to kick off that's okay um so again i've chosen one area of executive function that may be impacting um and or two actually it's task initiation and the goal directed persistence so um when there is um limited motivation the difficulty will be that the child is not going to be able to get started on the chore particularly easily um so a couple of strategies that i have for this aspect is that if the child has multiple chores to do in the house or if you're wanting if that's what you're wanting for your family you're wanting them to do multiple different chores I would encourage you to have them do the, either the quickest one or the easiest one for them first. What that means is it gives them a sense of achievement straight off. Um, it also means they've got more motivation to continue on to the next chore 
Um, and it means it regulates their energy. So they're not using all of their energy on the hardest or the longest task first, which means there's probably no chance they're going to do the second or third task. Um, so the quickest or easiest task first will help to regulate that energy. Um, another really useful strategy is to do tasks for less amount of time. So if the chore will likely take 10 minutes, for example, let's say it's unpacking the dishwasher and putting all the dishes away, if that will likely take your child 10 minutes, ask them for, to do it for one, just one minute. All you have to do is do one minute of unpacking the dishwasher. You don't have to finish it, just do one minute of it. Set a timer and at the end of that one minute, if the child is done and they've had enough, thank them for their contribution and let it go. If the child is actually quite happy to continue with that, oh, actually that went really quickly, that wasn't that bad, then they can do a second minute if they like or a third. But start with one and build up from there and always if they say they've had enough, thank them for that contribution, let it go and try another day. Great ideas. Thank you, Ebony. And keep moving. Lou, do you want to go next? Um, sure. Um, the dishwasher is such a great analogy, the one I use all the time. When kids have got ADHD, doing something they find boring is really hard for them, isn't it? So if you say, can you empty the dishwasher? It's like this big stop sign in front of them going, oh, my God, who wants to empty the dishwasher? It's so boring, blah, blah, blah. So I've learned that the best motivation um, isn't actually rewards, as in I'll give you a sticker on a chart or I'll buy you a toy. It's actually a relationship with them. So I've always looked at doing the chore or spoken to Jack about it as being a way of taking care of each other. So when Jack does the dishwasher, it's a way of expressing love to me. And when he does it, I will actually give him so much praise and say, thank you so much. It, I feel really loved when you do that. It's so appreciated and be really affirming. So now if I say to Jack, can you go do the dishwasher, please? He doesn't see the dishwasher. He clicks into this is part of our relationship and things and goes, yeah, sure, mum, and goes and does it. Now, as he's got older, if I asked him unmedicated at the end of the day, he's likely to squabble a bit more than he would like during the day unmedicated. Sometimes now he is actually starting to show some demand avoidance characteristics. He might go, can I do it in five minutes or can I do half now and half later? That's all fine, you know. It's, it's getting done. But the motivation to get it done is based on often our relationship and by basing it on that, that gives him internal motivation that's not fleeting. It's not something that, you know, disappears after you, you know, wave a sticker or a toy in front of them and they've got it and they play with it and two minutes later they've forgotten about it and it's got no weight anymore. Your, you know, attachment relationship with them is everything and one of the biggest motivators and one of the biggest ways of helping them activate. Mm. Such you. an important point. Thank you, Lou. I really love that. So, Danielle, what would you like to add? I'm just going to jump on the back of Lou there with connection so important. And um, we also have that we're well-placed with chores and everything else to ask the question why and make it purposeful. Um, if you don't know why, and we're just, I'm going to attack every adult in the room at the moment with why do you do the dishes and they only get done again and keep being redone? Or that or we can all relate to, I've just finished the washing. Oh, there's clothes in the basket again. Uh, but the reason why we do that is because we have to keep that cycle going. Um, so when the children go, well, why do I have to? Uh, we talk about, well, I need this, this pot for dinner and without this pot, I can't cook the thing that you want for dinner. So could you please give me a hand so that we can get there? And encouraging that communication is really important, particularly with communication as well. Um, I'd just like to highlight celebrating the small wins because there is so much negative self-talk in autism and ADHD and neurodivergence. Um, I'm dyspraxic, so I am so I'm so clumsy. I make so many mistakes while doing stuff in the kitchen um, that every time someone says, hey, mum, that's a really nice dinner, the elation that I feel from that is massive because it took so much work and it makes it worth it. It makes me want to do it again. Um, and I'm sure I just no one appreciates the um, dishes and the clothes getting done. They do, so still wear the clothes. Brilliant practical advice there. And, yeah, ask what the que why question. So very important. So thank you for that. Raylene, do you want to finish up on this one? Yeah. Um, gosh, everyone's had such fantastic ideas. I think... 
um, it can be great to bring things back to um, what we're talking about earlier, monotropism and interests, you know, and giving choice. So for a lot of children, that that idea of being asked to do something or told that they've they've got to do something, it's not meaningful to them. It's not something that they maybe particularly enjoy doing. I mean, who of us really enjoy doing chores? Some might, but I don't. Um, And so giving them a choice, these are the things, having a discussion like Danielle was saying, you know, why do these things need to be done? We need to do them to keep the house running, whatever it is. Here are the things that need to be done. Which thing do you think you can do, um, you know, or are you able to do this week or today or whatever it is, depending on the child? Um, I think that can make a big difference. And if you have got um, chores like looking looking after animals or doing other things that do relate to a child's interest, um, it's fantastic to be able to incorporate that into something that they're learning or doing um, and can be really wonderful. Um, the other thing I think is to actually get in there and be doing the chores with kids, especially when they're younger, um, they don't think it's fair. They get overwhelmed. They don't know, I think Danielle mentioned earlier as well, you know, that idea of go and clean your room. Well, where do I start? I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, well, I'm just not going to do it. So being able to go, okay, let's go and clean the toys up from the lounge room. Um, You get this, I'll get this. Let's get going. Or you get all the red things and I'll get all the yellow things. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But you're doing it with them. And I think that also plays to, to what Lou was saying about relationships. You're in there. They can see it's something that everybody is contributing to. And then as they get older, you can, um, you know, be allowing them or, or encouraging them to do that themselves. But initially it's, a, it's about collaborating in that partnership and helping them see that they're part of that. And that can, I think, make a big difference. Great advice again. I think collaborating, partnership really important and we use choices I've got a demand avoidant child and choices are a really powerful um, option there so thank you so much for that all right now we've got two more areas to cover but we might kind of combine these I think so I've asked you all to talk about um, self-care which organization what not losing things or what to do when you lose things or forget things, I guess, um, is one side of it. And then the other side of it, we've talked about boundaries and discipline and the, you know, example of things like screen time and what have you. But I guess this is when you're thinking about your child at home, they are not doing all the things they're supposed to be doing. Everything's lost. How do we support them through that? So hopefully I can get you all to kind of combine your thoughts on on those those areas. And um, Lou, we might kick off with you for that. Sure. Um, I'm probably going to answer this a little bit differently as well, is that sometimes our kids have so many things they're responsible for. And, you know, say they have to pack their bag in the morning for school and they have to get their lunch and they have to do this, this and this, and they're already stressed about getting ready and stuff. I'm very big on scaffolding and working out what's important and what's not. I still pack my son's bag in his 13 because going to school is hard for him. He gets really, really anxious. Um, by the time he's got ready, he's just started wearing, you know, a school uniform that involves a tie and stuff. There's already so much happening. He doesn't need to, you know, to pack his bag and have more stress on him. He will do that eventually when it's time. So sometimes we do need to highly scaffold and decide, you know, what is actually important here? Do we sometimes need to decrease their executive load so they've actually got more energy and don't end up falling apart halfway through the door the day because they're already done? Um, so self-care was I get my son's uniform out still. I leave his deodorant on his bed so he can see it because if he doesn't physically see it and I put it there, he won't use it. And I don't see that person as a problem where somebody else will go, they should be doing all that themselves. In my um, experience, my son will always turn around to go, you don't need to do that for me anymore, Mum, I can now do this. When he's ready and has developed that capacity for himself. But in the meantime... I want him to feel good about himself, be successful. And the last thing he needs to do is go to school and find out he's forgotten something, become dysregulated in class and not be able to learn and concentrate because his computer didn't get recharged or this didn't happen. I see that as my responsibility of keeping him safe and enabling him to be the best person he can be. And I know that over time I've gently got to push the boundaries and he starts to develop those things. But at his pace, pick, pick your priorities and stuff. And um, if anyone who knows me well will say, I don't believe in punishment in any form. I do not believe that, you know, operative conditioning things were based on um, 
neurotypical children. You can't punish a child to do something they haven't got the ability to do. If you are trying to get a child to stop and pause before they speak and they've got ADHD and they're unmedicated, you're asking them to fight their neurology. Who can do that? Our responsibility is to make sure that we change the environment so we're not putting them that in that position to start with. So now my own ADHD, I can't even remember what I was saying <laughs> and how I even got to that. Um, oh, that's right. So I don't believe in punishment. I believe in um, doing things together. Companionship gives you dopamine as well. It helps with motivation, um, being realistic, not I have very, very high expectations of my son, his behaviour, his manners and stuff, but I have never punished him in his life and he pretty much tends to meet them. And it's because it's to do with connection and understanding and helping him develop self-awareness and intrinsic motivation and also laying off sometimes when he's done, he's done, you know. Wanting to feel good about himself more than anything else. Like you can get through this world if your self-esteem is still intact that's all that matters sometimes. But if that's not, and you can do everything else and the self-esteem's not intact, we spend our lifetime trying to fix broken adults, which is just impossible. So powerful, Lou. Thank you so much for that. All I can say is yes, 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 and more yeses. So thank you. Um, Danielle, what do you want to say about this? Uh, so I love that um, communication is so important. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, I do love that. I just got caught up on that and remembering a few things for myself. Um, so, and, and we prioritise. We, we do look at our um, expectations a lot um, and wonder whether they're really needed. Um, you know, um, just as you made the example before, you know, I still, my 18-year-old still gets me to do their hair and lay their clothes out every day. Um, not because, you know, they're lazy. It's because that's too many decisions of a morning. I, I think there was a study done. So you make the 100 decisions before you leave the house of a morning. And just starting with that kind of pressure on, on a child particularly before walking out the door, before you're even in the car trying to get through school, uh, it's so difficult to then build from that. Uh, you're already in a state of anxiety and a state of heightened sound senses. Um, one of the things that... Um, uh, particularly that we work through, though, is ritual and routine. Uh, we make certain things the part of uh, what we do. So um, every night I get the kids' school, kids' uniforms and clothes ready because I don't want to be mucking around in the morning to find everything, not even the kids, to me. Um, and you've got to remember that a lot of us uh, have our own battles that we have to deal with every day. And sometimes carving the path of least resistance is the best thing for us all. And I'll talk about expectations, parental expectations, a little bit later. Um, but one of the things that uh, with boundaries and setting boundaries um, is that you've got to ask yourself why. Uh, and I keep saying that, uh, why? The curiosity is, it can bring about so much competence and understanding. And when, we, when we're curious with empathy particularly, um, I love that um, that's something that we've all, you know, we're a little bit curious on what, what our kids are thinking and things like that. But when we genuinely inquire to that, we can open up doors not only into communication, but also into acceptance and understanding and for them as well to learn self-advocacy. And a part of boundary setting is a give and take of communications. If you can't have a boundary work one way, it has to be two ways. And so by teaching them to the compromise, of, well, look, I, the reason why I have this boundary is because I'm tired and I can't deal with this. I, I'm not going to let you come into the kitchen because the kitchen's got a hot oven so you can't come in here right now or you'll get hurt. And, and so by teaching that, they'll learn to give and take and that there's reasons for boundaries. And I just want to make a separate um, mention of screen time um, with those boundaries as well. Um, we have hard set boundaries that are not, because uh, we've got PDA kids at home, uh, it's very hard for us as parents to be the bad guys because that causes a lot more explosions. Um, so we rely on systems. Uh, our systems at home is uh, that the external regulation of tablets is a timer. At a certain time, they get some shut off. Aside from that, we control what apps are on the um, screen time, and screen time is just another toy in the play in the playground. Um, we do that specifically because of how important screen time is to our neurodivergent kids as a regulation tool, but also um, it, technology is growing. Um, being able to measure things on an iPad is awesome when you're moving a room around. Um, and what, who are we to deny the kids the ability to learn to grow up with those tools? So by encouraging it and learning about it, it's made me more curious. And again, learning both sides of the coin. Curiosity is a wonderful tool. 
Great practical advice delivered with loads of compassion. Thank you so much, Danielle. Raylene, over to you. Um, I just love what everybody's saying. I think that, that, you know, connection and compassion and curiosity are just, you know, essential for everything we do with our, our children and certainly in terms of supporting them to grow and understanding um, their needs and accommodating those executive functioning challenges. You know, it's so, so, so important. So I think one of the things that I guess carries across both self-care and boundaries is, is um, which I think everyone's sort of touched on a little bit already, parents taking responsibility for um, setting their children up for success. So recognising where those challenges are. If something does go wrong, reflecting and saying, okay, what can I do next time to support my child to actually be able to manage this situation in a better way? How do we do that? So it might be... Um, you know, for, for parents that just want their kids to get dressed in the morning. I think Lou actually used this example earlier and I had it written down as well that, okay, go and get dressed and then the parent goes away and does all the other things they need to do and then they come back to the bedroom and the child's sitting on the floor playing Lego in their underwear and you go, ah, and it causes a huge amount of stress as a parent. But if we recognise that the child doesn't have the ability to get themselves dressed in the moment due to their distractibility, due to their ability to, to get themselves organised and plan what they need to do, we might need to stay with them and help them get dressed or lose idea of, you know, um, I often suggest to, to families to have a playlist and the child knows that when the playlist finishes, if they're familiar songs, that's when they need to have gotten dressed by. And so they can use that as a way to keep time rather than, you know, because time management is difficult. Um, so being involved and not being afraid to be involved rather than leaving a child because they should be able to do something is important. And I think screen time is another example of that. So many parents struggle with, um, you know, boundaries are different in all houses. Our kids are pretty much on devices whenever they want to, but I've got old now, um, much older children. Um, and it is important for them to use for downtime. Um, and so I understand that and that's something, a tool that they use. But for parents that, that do have boundaries in place, actually being with their child, again, you know, a parent that says, okay, you need to finish at the end of this level and then they walk away and the child's playing their game, they're getting, getting um, that rush, they're in that, that zone, they're loving playing, it's fantastic. They can't resist. They don't have the impulse control to not start Um another level when it pops up so the parent actually coming and being with them and talking with them or playing with them until the end of that level and then supporting them to move on um, can be a way to set them up for success so I need I think we need to look at that in all of these these um, areas self-care and boundaries and even the other things we've talked about in terms of what we can do and how we can help rather than expecting independence at a time when they're just not ready. Thank you. Setting our kids up for success is so important. Um, I, it's we keep we're reinforcing this with every part of this conversation. So it's really really great to to hear that. Um, Ebony, some final thoughts from from you on on this particular question. Yes. Now I have separated out the two areas, but I promise my answers are very succinct. So um, in regards to self care and daily living tasks, um, I looked at it from the executive function aspect of emotional regulation and attention. So if you have a child that doesn't have a lot of both of those aspects, their challenge will be finding it difficult to actually sustain their attention throughout a task and to manage any possible frustration that comes up. Um, what I find is often children are expected to do multiple self-care tasks in a row. So it's get dressed, then eat breakfast, then pack your school bag, then go and brush your teeth and then do your hair, um, all one after the other. So my suggestion as an alternative is to do interest um, activities of interest or have sensory breaks in between. So, for example, get dressed, then go and do some drawing, then have breakfast, then play with some sensory sand, then pack your school bag and then read for 10 minutes, etc. cetera. Um, so that was on self-care. In regards to behaviour, um, again, it depends on which area of executive functioning is a challenge for your child. So this is a very general strategy um, or two things. As a parent, I encourage you to remind yourself it's not about you. 
Your child's behavior is not about you. There is something else going on. Um, so always reminding yourself not to take it personally um, is really, really useful. And the second thing I encourage parents to do is ask yourself, if I had difficulty with time management, how would I be responding to this demand right now? If I had difficulty with flexible thinking, how would I be responding to this demand? Um, and putting yourself in your child's shoes and thinking through how that would affect you um, can also be a really useful strategy. Thank you, Ebony. That's really, really good, a really lovely way to end this um, conversation. But I think one thing that I really take away from this is the importance of connection between parents and children, connecting with your children and coming from that place of understanding, scaffolding, setting up for success. This is what I'm hearing. So I'm really, really excited and grateful for all the advice you have shared. So we're now going to kind of move to finishing up. Um, I've, I've got a couple more questions which you're going to be answering in pairs. Um, I'm going to start with you, Ebony and Raylene, and have a really brief, if we can, discussion about perfectionism. We know this is a common trait for so many autistic girls and individuals, redoing homework until it being perfect, it's perfect being one example. So what advice do you have for both parents and our neurodivergent young people who are struggling with perfectionism? And Ebony, we might let you kick off on that again while you're here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so the first really key point I want everyone to be aware of is that um, for me, and this is likely, could be likely for a lot of autistic individuals, perfectionism has always masked my executive functioning challenges. Yeah. So it's very easy to look at a child um, or a teen who is a perfectionist and think that they actually don't have any challenges with executive functioning at all because the perfectionism will mask that. So my um, first part point of advice for parents is to look into and research executive functioning. When we say executive functioning, a lot of people think, oh, that's just organisation and planning. It's so much more than that. So if you as a parent don't understand what executive functioning is, if you don't understand the nine or ten different aspects that make up executive functioning, go and do some research, look at it, do some reading yourself um, because when you can put supports in place for each particular aspect, um, it will be so much more successful. Parents, it's also really important to be aware that perfectionism is usually fueled by a fear of judgment. Um, by the thoughts that your child has that they are not good enough and that they are not accepted. So it's really important to separate that out and rather than just trying to support the perfectionism, try and support that aspect. Look at supporting um, their self-talk, their positive self-talk, their self-esteem, um, because that will make a huge difference to perfectionism. Asking why, I've mentioned this before. Um, so why do you feel you need to do it like that? Why did you think you had to redo that piece of homework? Why? And just asking why, 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 um, and having your child respond, whether it be verbally or you can write them an email or write it in a journal and they can think about it throughout the week and come back to you with responses. But finding out why will really help you. Um, and be very mindful of comments or questions like always do your best or was that the best that you could do? because those will stay with your child throughout their whole life, I guarantee it. So be very careful about using those comments. That's my advice for parents. Um, advice for young people listening. Um, ask yourself, um, and this is probably for older individuals, but ask yourself, is this helping me? Is what I'm doing, this redoing this homework piece five times, is this actually helping me? Will the world end if I don't get this perfect or will the word end if it doesn't look like what I think it's supposed to look like? How can I let go of this? Yeah. Um, why do you think you need to do a task in a certain way? And you can have communications with a trusted adult about that. In general, for individuals of all ages, the best things you can do for yourself, and this may not sound like it's connected to perfectionism, but it is if we're looking at um, the aspect of judgment and self-confidence, Spend time with people who make you feel good about yourself. That's the first thing. Spend time with people who don't try to change you. That's number two. Third thing is involve yourself in activities that don't have any right ans wrong answers. Yeah, um, there's no wrong answers and there's no particular right answers either. Do those sorts of activities. Make lists of your differences 
and write reasons as to why they're good because they are. <laughs> Spend time doing activities that are repetitive and that make you feel in control, such as sorting socks is one of my favourites, yeah? Um, and also make lists about what you gain from or what you enjoy about the process of doing things. So what did you enjoy about doing your project? Or what did you learn from doing your project? Try and focus on the process of doing things rather than the end result. Such good advice there. Thank you. I wish I had you telling me that when I was a child. That is really wonderful. So much there. Thank you, Ebony. Raylene, would you like to add anything on perfectionism? Wow, Ebony, that was fantastic. There's so much wonderful advice there for, for parents and, and children. I think um, something, I guess, which Ebony touched on around um, perfectionism being something that can be masking executive functioning um, challenges. I think it's also to consider that that perfectionism and going into that perfect child mode is also a masking um, strategy that some children that are able to go into um, will to try and um, avoid negative attention, um, maybe in result um, as a result of trauma um, or of of negative evaluation at, you know, at other points or other times in their life. So that striving for perfection can be about um, not being noticed from a point of view of um, sort of flying under the radar and then not, you know, not getting that negative attention. I, I can um, be normal, which we see, you know, so many of our kids pretending to be someone that they're not. Um, so, and certainly also um, I think one of the big things is that idea of being accepted and um, feeling that they're not good enough um, without performing and without being um, being perfect and that's such a big thing. So working on um, self-esteem, working on um, supporting our kids to understand their neurology, understand where their strengths and challenges are, why they do things the way they do, that they're not faulty or broken, they just do things differently and might need different things to support that. So they don't need to be striving to be able to do things that are actually not within um, the realm of the way their brain does things. They need to do it in a different way. Um, I think that that's really, really important. I think actually it's also important to highlight that there, there will be kids that are perfectionistic that don't actually outwardly express that. So they might do things that are just good enough or just look good enough. Um, they might refuse to do things because they don't want to do things wrong, but they might manage by kind of just getting by. But internally, they're actually expecting themselves to do much better. And so they're constantly berating themselves for not performing at um, a level that they think they should. And so that can probably, um, it can be hard to spot because they seem to maybe not be putting in an effort or not trying, so how can they be a perfectionist? It's actually their way of coping with that, and I think that's important to recognise as well. Um, I guess from a psych point of view, besides um, some of the things that Ebony suggested around supporting self-esteem and being around people that accept you for who you are and that you can use those things that you enjoy to build up your self-concept and your confidence in yourself, um, as parents, uh, modelling that positive self-talk and modelling making mistakes and problem-solving. Oh, right, that didn't quite work out the way I was expecting. Oh, well, I can do it this way. Or this tastes really good but it looks funny or whatever it is, but helping them see that it's okay for things not to be, you know, exactly the way that they might expect them, that things can still turn out okay. Um, and then working on beliefs, so certainly asking that question, why, why do you need why do you feel that need to be perfect? What is it driving that um, that need? Um, looking at, you know, stuck thinking, are they focusing? Is that, that monotropism, again, that focus, is it actually centering on negative thoughts or expectations of themselves? And that's becoming all-encompassing because that rumination around negative self-talk is absolutely going to impact on their mood and, you know, and how they're able to, to participate in things and function. So being aware of that, helping them understand that um, and also helping them, helping kids um, tolerate, which is hard, but that uncomfortable feeling that it's okay to feel uncomfortable sometimes. It's yucky. We don't like it, but it will pass. 
Um, why are we feeling uncomfortable about that? What can we do to help ourselves feel better? But it's okay to feel the feeling too. Thank you. Such great advice there again. Really, really wonderful. And I think you've led us beautifully to the last question, which I'm going to put to Lou and Danielle today, and that is around parents. And I'd love to know what gentle and compassionate advice do you have for parents who are struggling with their own frustration and exhaustion levels and who do find themselves caught in the cycle of battling their children's neurology. And you've both already touched on this beautifully, so I would just love to know your sort of closing thoughts on this, starting with you, Lou. The first thing I'd say is stop fighting. Pick your relationship with your child above everything else. If you try and fight your neurology or your child's neurology, you're never going to win. And you just set you up and your child up for feeling bad about themselves. Ensure that your expectations are realistic and important to you and your family and forget about what everyone else is doing. It doesn't matter. Role model self-awareness, self-acceptance, self-compassion, how to embrace your strengths and how you scaffold your challenges and share it with them. Share that you make mistakes and practice collaborative problem solving. We all know that if someone tries to solve our own problems as adults, we kind of rebel a little bit. Or if someone comes into our work environment and says, we're going to do it all this way from now on, we're really not on board. If they haven't collaborated in it and are not part of that decision, it's very hard for them to activate and be interested in want to do it. And just go love your child. Prioritise the self-concept and their self-esteem above, you know, things like their grades at school, et cetera, because that's what's going to determine their outcomes more than anything else. They're already beautiful just the way they are. They don't need to be changed. They just need to learn how to live successfully with their own neurology and their own strengths and challenges and contribute to the world in a meaningful way because that's what makes all us feel good and the reason that we're here. Thank you. And our children are beautiful just the way they are. And that is the take-home message there. Thank you so much, Lou. Danielle, would you like to wrap this up for us? Sure. Uh, so one of the things as parents as carers um, that we really struggle with is recognising that this is the thick of it. We are, especially when we are in the thick of it or as we like to refer to it, in the pit. Um, and this involves a lot of radical acceptance of this is where things are at. I can't improve this way. You know, and you try everything. You spend every ounce of your body and your time trying to improve outcomes. Um, but sometimes it just involves radically accepting that, no, this is what's happening right now and this is what I need to deal with. Um, another suggestion, and this was mentioned last year in the conference, and I'm sure it's going to be a highlight again this year, is finding your community. Uh, you aren't alone in this journey. You, while, we're, while you're doing those battles, while you're sitting there in those uncomfortable, difficult moments, there are other parents just like you, other educators just like you that are going through the same thing. And just knowing that someone else is, is, is experiencing what you are can make you feel so, so much more a part of the world and not so alone. Um, but one of those things that uh, we, we find commonly in groups is, uh, and what, the reason why those groups are so important is everyone will tell you, make sure you fill your cup. Cup is a lie. The cup is impossible and a holy cup to fill. And I'm sure we can all relate to someone. Oh, you have self-care and fill your cup. You can't pour from an empty cup. I don't have a cup. I have spoons. And I'm sure we've all mentioned spoon theory before because it's easier to hold a whole bunch of spoons than it is to put uh, water in a holy cup. Um, the reason why I say that is most of the times when that happens, it's about boundaries that you have with yourself and expectations. Um, being in these community groups and also being able to sit with the uncomfortable things allows you to analyse your expectations of yourself, the ex where those expectations and the bias comes from. Is it from what you were told by your parents or your family around you? Is it the, the expectations of your supports, of your, of your medical teams, the expectations of the school and other communities around you? And you find that when you immerse yourself in communities that do have a good look at their expectations and can say you're doing the best that you can, the validation um, makes those moments where you don't know where to go, you don't know what to do, just that little bit more easier. Um, we've talked today a lot about a lot of difficult things, uh, the moments where we have to sit there and model and guide our children through, through murky waters that we're not quite aware of ourselves and through places that we don't even know about. A lot of those times it's because we have been aware that we've got some neurodivergence, but because of our age, our um, past, the era that we grew up in, we've got a bit of a separation from that. 
and all these wonderful resources for children are there now. So be kind to yourself, be compassionate to yourself. Um, it's really it, it's easy to sit there and hate on yourself when you do it and we go through these big moments in the pits and I just wanted to take a moment to say have empathy and compassion for yourself. Uh, you are doing a great job. The fact that you're sitting here listening to the words of autistic people and neurodivergent people, the fact that you are willing to educate yourself on the things that are going on inside your child's brain, the fact that you're willing to listen to what's going on to your child and what's going on in their world means the world to not only your child but other people that are just like them. You have wrapped this up beautifully. I can't add anything more to this. You, you've said it all and finding your community as parents, we're not alone. None of us are alone. We, we've, we've got kindred spirits out there who who understand this so if we can find each other that's wonderful and empathy and self-compassion and look we're all doing the best we can our kids are doing the best they can and so are we so I think that's just the perfect way to end and I want to say thank you Lou, Ebony, Danielle and Raylene you've all been absolutely wonderful today. <laughs>